Welcome to the White Noise Podcast. We're back for, I guess it's season two now, right? Yeah. Since it's February. Um, so we were able to do about six episodes last year. We're going to try our best to fill the fill the months up. And uh, we have a good slate of guest speakers for you guys this year. Uh, our first guest uh, for this season is going to be Dr. Alan Iser, uh, who is a psychologist at the University of Michigan. Um, just a little bit about him. Uh, he was born in New Jersey, and he says at the time where the Dodgers still played in Brooklyn and grew up around that area. He started college as a math and science major at MIT, but ultimately travel, or transferred to the University of Michigan for their excellent program in clinical psychology with a strong psychoanalytic uh, bent. Uh, his interest in dreams was the basis for becoming uh, involved in sleep laboratory work. And he was drawn by the possibilities by, uh, for approaching dreams in new ways. After graduating from the University of Michigan, he worked uh, for a couple of years in the depression program and was involved in graduate, uh, psycho- uh, graduate training of psychology students and psychiatry residents in doing clinical work. In 1988, he became board certified in sleep medicine. Uh, he currently maintains a private practice in psychotherapy and has been involved in continuing uh, education of sleep medicine fellows at the University of Michigan. Uh, He is also involved in the training of psychiatry residents. Uh, Particular areas of interest for him are dreaming and parasomnias, particularly the psychological dimensions of these phenomena, which are often oversimplified or overlooked entirely in present-day sleep medicine. And he has lectured extensively and published uh, in these areas. So, Alan, welcome to the White Noise Podcast. We are Overjoyed to have you here. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. And Thanks. joining me are, as always, Doctors Alok Suchdeva and Dr. John Hello. Barkham. Hi. Thanks for coming in. Hey, my pleasure. <laughs> we've been trying to get you, to we've been trying to get you on for a while. So yeah, yeah. we're glad we're able to do this. Um, I guess, as always, uh, to get started, um, Alan, what's uh, what's you know the best piece of advice that you've gotten? Um, you know, in your, in your career or? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about that and I think this is more a distillation from various pieces of advice than something someone specific told me, but life is full of beautiful things and try not to get too distracted from focusing on them and um, maximizing them. Yeah. I think that's, that's a good one. We often, uh, especially in medicine, we kind of don't stop and smell the roses, We're I guess. Designed <laughs> to look for flaws in medicine. Right. right? Yeah. <laughs> Seek out the abnormal. And uh, what's what's one thing that you like to do outside of kind of your, you know, psychology practice or, or medicine? Yeah, I love to travel. Um, I used to be a regular traveler to Europe. Um, I've gotten away from it in recent years and I want to make a point of getting back, uh, back to traveling because it's enriching and exciting and life enhancing. Uh, What's your favorite place you've been to in Europe? My God, there are so many. Yeah, I know that's a bad question. <laughs> I mean, no, it's a, it's a good question. It's a chance to think about, you know, so I've, I've loved Spain. Uh, Prague was wonderful. Uh, Paris is a beautiful city. Um, you know, you could go on and on. The Greek islands in a different way are gorgeous and do you speak just multiple, so many things. multiple languages? Is that I speak multiple languages poorly um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and English passingly, but, uh, you manage. Uh, yeah. 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 I went to Russia one year after the communist government was thrown out and it was just fascinating to see what that was like. Wow. Sort of felt like a moment in history. Yeah. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Traveling is fun. Yeah. 
if you don't mind being treated like cattle as you go through the airports, which is my biggest problem. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> so you had to get uh, global check and yeah. whatever oh, that's called. I have that, but yeah. still, I still hate it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and our last question, uh, kind of get to know you, is what's something that you're interested in? You know, this month or recently, kind of book, movie, TV, non-medicine stuff that you're kind of into. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like eating out at fine restaurants. I tried Logan for the first time, ah, which, which yeah. has apparently been around Ann Arbor 15 years or something like that. It's one I, of my favorites. I'd never gotten to it before. It's a terrific restaurant. Yeah. The food was wonderful. Yeah. The, the pairings of the wines with the dishes was great. Yeah, so you had their uh, potato pave. I don't think so. Oh my God. It's so good. I, I have, have to been go meaning back. to go there, but I have not been there yet. It's, yeah, yeah. And you can, it's actually a nice restaurant. You can actually schedule reservations. You know, right. some of the other ones it's, you get, yeah. so it's good. Yeah. Huh. Alok, you got, you got a pick of the month? My pick of the month is, um, so there's a company I read about recently. ABC ran a story on it. Um, I think they're called Southern Company and they're a utility company in Georgia. So they, of thousands of employees, they have, uh, in the past few years, they have screened about 4,000 for sleep apnea, mm -hmm. diagnosed about 1,500, and start, uh, started, I believe, those patients on treatment uh, at no cost to the patient. I don't know exactly what their model is, but more and more commonly, companies that uh, have uh, employees that work with heavy machinery or in transportation um, are putting into practice models that expedite uh, diagnosis and treatment of sleep apnea. So that's my pick of the month is, is that company and companies like it that are taking the lead on uh, putting into practice um, mechanisms that make it easier for their employees to do their job safely. Yeah. And may pay for itself. Yes. And they, yeah. they add a story reported that they've saved they estimate they've saved millions yeah. in, in yeah, yeah. this process of uh, helping uh, employees get the treatment they need. Is this through a sleep doctor? Like to, that's yes. kind of skilled at fatigue management? or Yep. Some? Yep. And they're addressing not only sleep apnea, but also insomnia. Those are the two most common uh, conditions they're helping uh, employees address. And they collaborate with sleep clinicians. And Interesting. I, I don't know exactly how they do that, yeah. but um, it's worked very well for them. So what was the name of the book again? Uh, so that it was, it was, <laughs> so you, you think it's a book cause he always does a book. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm like this is a, it was, it was an ABC news story. Oh, okay. Uh, that company I believe is called Southern. Uh -huh. Um, it's a utility company. Um, but there were other companies doing similar things uh -huh. in, in that story. And so. Cool. And a, yeah, uh, I think a promising trend. We'll try to maybe link it. Yeah. Yeah. We can yeah. see if we can find a link to their, their company website. Yeah. John, you got one? Uh, well, I did binge watch The Expanse, the uh, final season <laughs> after you recommended it the last you. time. So I got, What'd you think? That's checked off. Uh, it was good. Yep. I don't want to be a spoiler. I okay. think I think the previous seasons were better. Better, yeah. Okay. Is it sci-fi? It's sci-fi, yeah. yeah. I have a bit, a bit of a, a bit of a closet sci-fi freak. So <laughs> nothing wrong with that. No. <laughs> Uh, I guess mine is uh, The Witcher, the Netflix show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now I'll be watching that. Thanks. Yeah. See, you got to watch it. It's based off a series of books from this Polish author, which oh. was then changed into 
probably one of the best video game series of all time. What's it called? The Witcher. How do you spell that? Witcher. W-I-T-C-H-E-R. Which Witcher? The Witcher. Yeah. It, it's very just, good. You just like seeing the ridiculously handsome uh, I protagonist. Love, I love seeing Henry Cavill. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. He's <laughs> he's great. <laughs> All right. Uh, no, it is. It is very good. It's uh, it's eight, eight episodes long, and oh, that's it's got a very catchy song that everyone's kind of in love with right now. Uh, now I'll be stuck in my head. Too. Yeah. I know. All right. Well, it's, it's I'll good. check it out now. Um, can, you give, can you give us a sample of this? You don't song, want you don't want tune. me to give you a sample of the tune. I'm gonna <laughs> not watch the show if I do that. So <laughs> Netflix will sue me for for turning people away from that show <laughs> if they hear me sing. So, well, uh, I'll just let you guys know it's good, and you should check it out. Um, all right. So shall we get started? Yes. All right. I guess. So usually we have a case, uh, and then we kind of build off that case and, and kind of ask our, our guest expert on, you know, how, how they would manage that case. But I think that, um, since we're going to be discussing parasomnias and they're so wide and varied and, and, uh, Alan has a very different perspective on them coming, not so much from, uh, the field of, of medicine. We're just going to kind of have an open discussion on, on, on parasomnias and I guess kind of how Alan manages his practice and what his thoughts and views are on the issue and how that kind of compares and contrasts with what we do as physicians for the management of parasomnia. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I would say that what interests me is not, not, not so much a different view, but an additional dimension right. um, because I agree with all the things that sleep medicine sees and parasomnias, the, um, factors that that we take into account in terms of triggering uh, events, what states of sleep they come out of, and the treatments for that matter, up to a point. But I think certain of the parasomnias have very important psychological dimensions that play a critical role in addition to the sleep-related dimensions, and that those are almost entirely overlooked in sleep medicine uh, Mm. work, standard sleep medicine work in literature even if the evidence for them is very obvious in published papers and cases. So, well, we're not trained much, I'd say to, to look into the kind of the psychological basis of stuff. It's more of, you know, um, medicate or, uh, send to someone who, you know, once you failed your medicate medication options. Mm -hmm. So like, how do you start to, you know, break down the, the, that, like the approach or how could we be better about kind of trying to understand that dimension of, of the, I don't know if this is the wrong term, psychoanalytic. Yeah. 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 Psychoanalytic, psychodynamic. Um, well, I, I would say, I mean, let's say you're looking at a case of um, sexomnia, sleep related sexual behavior. Mm-hmm. I would be alert as you talk to the patient about their symptoms and maybe ask them a little bit about their life in general, which I think we should always do as part of an evaluation. Alert to indications that the same issues that are troubling them in their sleep have, you know, have correlates, have manifestations in their daytime waking life and or have pretty apparent links to their childhood development. And I think if you get a sense there's something like that there, then I would refer them for a more in-depth evaluation to cover that aspect of the parasomnia. Sexomnias are almost, they're very difficult because often the patient, you kind of trip over it. It's not something they're forthright with talking about. They're often embarrassed about. Yeah. Um, And we don't really, I mean, we ask, about bizarre behaviors at night. Right. But the, you know, 
the they're a bit there's so much attached to that term and and what happens that uh, yeah, yeah. it can be difficult to dig into. Um, does this happen often in your practice too? That you kind of it kind of comes up later in the as you're discussing something like insomnia and then like later on it comes up, Oh, you know, well, this has happened several times where it's put me in a bad situation. Yeah. No, actually the patients who were referred to me would be patients that have already been diagnosed with sexual behavior during sleep oh, okay. and treated. And somebody has a sense that there's more to it than the uh, sleep medicine approach uh, in the narrow sense can address and get to, and that the person maybe ought to, look into it a little more closely and talk about it in more depth. I mean, that's, that's how it'll happen. I, I don't do CBT treatments for insomnia, for example. So it's not that I have a whole group of insomnia patients that this comes that this emerges from, mm -hmm. but, but rather they'd be pretty particular uh, referrals uh, based on the sense that there's something going on psychologically in this patient with a parasomnia. So let's say for instance, the uh, sexomnia, we would consider that a non-REM parasomnia. Right, yeah? right. And, you know, how often is it, are you able to help these people with that through the psycho, psych, psychological approach versus, you know, they, were they already treatment failures with medication or do you end up having to treat with, you know, medication anyways, or you're able to work through it and be medication free? What's, what type of, what type of, uh, right. Um, I mean, I would always favor if they have symptoms that are problematic or disruptive, trying to treat the symptoms with medications, mm -hmm. um, because I think you can bring some important relief to somebody by doing that. And, you know, I, I don't see any reason not to do it. So, so the question then becomes, presumably you have some kind of, uh, effective reduction in the actual parasomnia behaviors. Can you engage the patient in looking at whatever the issues may be that were also being, uh, manifested in the parasomnias um, as they come up in their personal lives, in their relationships, um, in their pasts. I mean, this is a bit of co-treatment if you can. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's more, you know, let's give the person the opportunity to cover all the bases of the symptoms that they came and presented with and get a sense of how those issues may be impacting them more broadly and not just view the symptoms gone, everything is fine. I mean, mm. some people will feel that way. And sometimes it may be, it may be true, um, but be alert to other things that can be addressed and treated. It's my, <clears throat> my issue with kind of uh, sexomnias or parasomnias, yeah. which lead to kind of suspect behavior yeah. is, and I guess, and I think this is kind of the crux of a lot of stuff is how do you really know that it's due to the pair, whatever they've done, whether it's right. Ab, you know, abnormal sexual behavior or abnormal other sort of sleepwalking or yeah, deviant behavior. Yeah. Because how do we really know that it's due to sleep or if it's just something, you know, you know, the sleepwalking defense, right. is there any, and I know you've, you know, you've consulted on cases and kind of what's your approach to kind of going about trying to figure out whether things are actually uh, sleep related or, or if it's just somebody doing something. Right. You know, Apart from the consulting that you referred to, I haven't been in the position clinically of having to make those kinds of mm -hmm. discriminations usually. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a legal situation, you would want to see, for example, do the behaviors really fit with the parasomnia that's being alleged to be the cause? Um, 
Do they have evidence of having that parasomnia? Um, is there any third-party evidence that helps to shed light on what may have gone on? You know, things, more kind of factual things like right. that. Um, and that's a separate issue, really, from whether the behaviors have some psychological mm -hmm. determinants. It can still be a parasomnia, right. which can still give them um, a reasonable defense in a legal case. Um, a lot of the cases that come to trial these days seem to be pretty far-fetched, and mm -hmm. that becomes pretty quickly evident. There's a lot of drinking involved. The person has a history of violent behavior, because they're often sleep-related violence. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. That, that finds its way into the courtroom. Um, but that's a, that's a kind of different um, discrimination to make than, than is figuring out what may be going on psychologically with somebody, let's say, who does some low-level violent activities during their sleep and then mm -hmm. trying to help them address that. Right, right. Yeah. If we take, uh, you know, uh, behaviors such as sexual behavior, violent behavior during sleep. Yeah. Eating is the other common one. Eating, yeah. yeah. Um, that are more specific. Uh, we contrast it to sleep walking. Yeah. Granting, granted, walking is its own thing, but yeah. many, many patients, children and adults sleepwalk. Right. Um, can you make the same argument for a psychological underpinning with somnambulism uh, as you could say with sexomnia? Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. Actually, I mean, there there may be isolated cases where where that would apply and yeah. would be helpful, but it it seems to me the evidence in the literature and the cases I've seen are for those patients with repetitive, complex, um, often appetitive or instinctual kind of behavior out of sleep, eating, sexual behavior, violence. Um, where where I think you can make the case, there are often complex psychological factors. Garden variety, sleepwalking, not necessarily so. Uh, and may do just fine treating it in the ordinary ways we treat, you know, sleepwalking. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. We, uh, with sleep eating is compelling uh, for discussion because yeah. sleepwalking, even patients sometimes ask, well, is it sleepwalking and then I eat or is it sleep related eating disorder? Um, in yeah. your experience, patients that eat during sleep, what types of psychological conflicts or, uh, you know, um, experiences in the past um, have led to that? Uh, yeah, um, emotional deprivation, uh, sense of a bleak kind of empty childhood environment, uh, impoverishment of relationships and you know, in, in the course of their growing up, uh. for, ex for example, um, comes up a lot with sleep-related eating. Um, you know, casting a little bit more uh, broadly than in my own, you know, the limited cases I've seen, um, also childhood abuse of various kinds is very often in the background of sleep-related eating, uh, whether, whether, you know, emotional, physical, or sexual abuse. Uh -huh. uh, and then often when you look closely, some of these the patients won't have just one kind of behavior like eating. They'll also have sexual behavior at other times or sometimes, you know, uh, in the same period of time. And you get, you get the sense there's a kind of nexus of factors that go together. Have you seen resolution of uh, sleep-related eating with therapy? I haven't tried to, to work with it without 
medications right. being utilized. Yeah. Um, so, so in in general, you get good results with the medications. Yeah. Um, um, and then you may get some further benefits out of therapy. Yeah. Um, now, you you also see funny things that you won't be in a position to appreciate unless you have this perspective in mind. I, I've seen people who clearly didn't like losing their symptoms. Hmm. Um, and, and, you know, when they realized that sort of reacted negatively um, and made a, made a kind of rationale for why they said what they said. But, you know, apparently they're getting some gratification from the eating or sexual behavior, let's say, in their sleep that a part of them is reluctant to give up. That's um, interesting. Um, I think I think that happens more often than I, we think. I was there like, any sorry. Oh no, I would just I that's I never would have imagined that because I feel like whenever we see a patient, that's always the problem and they want it fixed. Yeah. yeah. So are those patients coming to you still with this is the problem, but they don't they're kind of opposed to having it like cured? I, I guess I don't opposed to having treatment? Look, yeah. Or? Well, that's a, that's another it's another interesting question. I think a lot of the people who present primarily to a sleep disorder center in a medical center are looking for a medical right. diagnosis and treatment, and may in fact be reluctant to get into more deeply exploring psychological things. I mean, probably the latter group of people wouldn't necessarily go first to a sleep disorders center, although they sh you know they should have that as part of their evaluation. Um, John, I, I was listening to one of the previous podcasts and you described something like what I what I just described in terms of someone who in their nightmares, I think this was a veteran, um, was dreaming of their close buddy who had died mm -hmm. and didn't want to give up the nightmares, in part felt attached to the nightmare because it helped them feel a sense of preserving the tie to the um to the to the buddy they had lost correct i mean that's a similar thing right yeah. there there was some important gratification or satisfaction in the symptom that the person didn't want to give up uh mm -hmm. you know un understandably yeah. if you, once once you look into the factors and you know maybe have a chance to explore them well i you know i had a case of a sexomnia where this individual she had it but it wasn't a problem yeah. And the intimate partner didn't complain. And so it was kind of like, it's not a problem. Yeah. And I don't want to treat it. Yeah. <clears throat> so it's, it's, that stuff happens. And then I've also had Absolutely. other ones where just the, you know, I've also had patients who came, came to me and I don't remember if this kind of came up kind of on the, like throughout the conversation or if it came to me as primary a, as a workup for sexomnia, but the patient just had nocturnal penile tumorescence. And he, because he was dreaming at the same time, he associated with whatever dream content and content he had uh, was causing that and felt mm -hmm. as if he was some sort of monster, you know, as in, and, and, and so I think that's helpful for him to know that that's just, yeah. you know, that's just REM. Yeah. Know? So um, and probably to the layman, they don't, they don't know these things yeah, and yeah. they're probably embarrassed to talk about it, but it probably happens more often than I've been observant of. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the one additional thing I would wonder in that case is why was he prone to think so badly of himself because well, he had an erection during dreaming? The content yeah. of the dream ah, ah, ah. was of his family. Ah, okay. So, so you know, you know, being maybe more concrete. Yeah. Not able to kind of pull that out, you yeah. know. Yeah. 
So uh, I guess one question, and this is kind of a little bit different, but one question I wanted to ask you yeah. um, was why do you think that we kind of discount the psychodynamic aspect of parasomnias? And I, yeah. I discussed this with you once, or we talked about, or I brought it up, I guess, uh, when you're talking is that I was, when I was studying for boards and yeah. Alok and I passed. That's why we didn't have a couple episodes for a while. All right. But uh, boards are done. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> you were out celebrating. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but um, I was doing a question from the AASM question bank on the website, and there was a question on parasomnia, and it was whether or not is there an underlying um, you know, psychological dimension to this right. parasomnia, and I answered yes, and the answer was... or. That was the incorrect right. answer. So right. I guess why is there such a disconnect between kind of what the evidence shows and what the papers have published versus kind of yeah. this recognition that there may be something else underlying yeah, yeah. why people are doing what they're doing? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a complicated question. I mean, I would I would say, first of all, that it's especially non-REM parasomnia, as I'm right. talking about, not, say, REM behavior disorder. Right. Although, yes, for nightmares. <laughs> um Partly it's understandable historically in that I think when people used to present with odd behaviors, surprising behaviors out of sleep, they would automatically get a psychiatric diagnosis and be referred for, for treatment as if, as if these were to be understood simply as mental health issues. And once it was discovered that they've also got a very a critical, an essential dimension of being a sleep issue, I think, you know, some of the people in the field wanted to make that case very strongly, you know, which has its benefits, but also to kind of push back hard against the old view that these are just mental health issues, um, understandably, again, up, up to a certain point. Um, but I think it's gotten lost a little bit that there are important things going on psychologically. And if you look in the literature, the amount of psychopathology diagnosed when they present that in, in samples, you know, large samples of these kinds of patients, the amount of childhood experiences that are that are obviously pathogenic and obviously linked to the behaviors is, is quite remarkable. And if you look closely at individual cases, you'll see it. But I think it's, it's just gotten lost and the whole, the field has changed to being more of a, let's say, medical specialty, sometimes in the narrower sense, sense of the uh, term. So there's a little bit less openness and appreciation, I think, uh, to the full complexity and richness of human beings uh, and how that comes into Have play. Have you kind of seen that change throughout the course of your career kind of, because you, yeah. you were, you were one of the original sleep fellows, right? Sleep fellows or? We didn't, they didn't they, have formal fellowships right, when I exactly. did my, uh, so. right. Um, I was two, you understand at the time, two years old. So it's, <laughs> it's <not> the, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have, I have seen that. Um, and it's, it's a sort of ironic thing because in the early days of the field, what people were excited about was the connection between REM sleep and dreaming. And the opportunity, let's say, to bring sleep laboratory methods to bear and experimental methods to bear and getting at the dreams right when they happen to better understand dreaming. So a lot of psychoanalytically, psychodynamically oriented people were involved and were some of the most important people in the early days of the field. And gradually that shifted. Um, it's partly an issue of funding, too. It's easy to get funding for obstructive sleep apnea, you know, which, which can be sort of clearly delineated as a concrete 
disease entity with such and such costs and such and such benefits to the treatment. It's easy to get funding for that sort of thing, to get funding for studying more closely and documenting the psychological nuances of some of these behaviors. Not so easy in the current uh, environment. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Probably personal factors and some of the mm -hmm. leaders of the field have, have sometimes played a role. Well, I, I think uh, dreaming doesn't get much attention, you yeah, know, and as dreaming as yes. just plain old dreaming, right. which leads to, you know, what I do nightmares don't get much attention. And, and so, you know, that's why I'm, I'm interested in the, in, in how, how do I, what do I read? Where do I go for a resource to uh, try to understand that psychological dimension as like, you know, as my practice practice progresses, like what, yeah, yeah. where, what should I go to, to kind of get a better understanding without having to go repeat like a fellowship in psychology? Right. Right. So, so do you know Milton Kramer's work at all? He was, he was, he's a psychiatrist who was at the VA in Cincinnati when he did a lot of this work. He published some very nice case studies, uh, relatively straightforward that documented that the post-traumatic nightmares some of the patients he was working with had were clearly linked not only to the combat experience they had had, but to significant troubling issues from their childhood. I mean, in very, in, in very apparent and obvious ways. So you can get a pretty quick sense from that, that there's often, you know, uh, personal stuff going on. And, and, and he had it that in terms of what's selected out of the combat experience that is particularly traumatic, because there's a lot of stuff you're exposed to mm -hmm. in combat and different people respond differentially to the different things, you know, in terms of what's selected and how it's responded to and how it shows up in the nightmares and so on. Mm -hmm. um, a much more extensive treatment. There's a guy named um, Melvin Lansky um, who wrote a book called Post-traumatic nightmares, I think, is the the name of it. Mm -hmm. um, he worked at VA in LA that had a special unit where they um, admitted people. These were psychiatric inpatients, so they were quite troubled, um, and and also worked very closely with their families and was able to document how the nightmares were closely related to what was going on in their interpersonal relationships in the current life, and were linked to other traumas that had happened at the same time as the combat experience and or childhood traumas. Mm -hmm. um, so you get a, you get a nice sense from uh, looking at a book like that of what the, what the richness and complexity can be, e even of what may seem like just a repetitive, um, simple, you know, derivative of a, of a uh, traumatic experience. Do you, um, I guess you see, in your patient population, yeah. um, those with parasomnias that kind of have like, let's say, sleep eating, sleep related sexual behavior, sleep related violence. Do you also find that they have nightmares about like similar content that they're kind of enact like enacting? Is that some is there is there a correlation between kind of the activity that they're doing and the, the not so much like REM sleep behavior disorder we're yeah, actually yeah. dreaming about, but kind of like their nightmare that they're dreaming about their NREM parasomnia. Is there some sort of correlation between that? I haven't seen an haven't obvious seen correlation. Um, mm -hmm. the, the dreams I would expect would deal with some of the same issues uh -huh. uh, in yeah. one way or another. But there is yeah. a diagnostic dilemma there when you're when you're first seeing the patient. That you know, it's a that's an important point that we don't really 
we get a sense clinically, historically, of what's going on, what stage of sleep it might be occurring from. But we don't really know with confidence until we study that patient in the lab. Right. Um, if you catch you know, it that night. If you catch if it that night. you see it. It's a bit of a fishing expedition. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's a matter of making our best, you know, our best guess and the best inference and trying a treatment and seeing what uh, yeah. what the result is. Uh, yeah. and, and then I guess the second, do you see a lot of comorbid nightmare with, I guess, non-REM parasomnia? Or, I mean, you know, nightmares yeah. along with with kind of sexomnia or sleep-related eating disorder. Is that yeah, pretty common? Yeah, I, I, I haven't seen them no. co-occurring. No. I, I've seen comorbid sleep-related eating and sleep-related sexual behavior, okay. but not so much nightmares. Maybe there's a reason for that, too, if you think about it. If it's getting expressed, the issue is getting expressed behaviorally a lot right. during non-REM sleep, maybe it gets, it, it doesn't have to come to expression so uh, so much during dreaming and nightmares. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Oh, it's an interesting, interesting perception. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't think about that. Do you, do, do you get a lot of nightmare cases that you end up treating through your I, practice? I've seen, I've seen a number of them. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it just, it just, for me, it, it brings home the complexity and richness of, of the symptom of nightmares, uh, in, in, in people, um, and how much can be missed by just looking at the nightmare as a isolated symptom that you want to Get rid of now there's a place for that right i mean somebody's sure. life is being disrupted and you can bring them some symptomatic relief absolutely and and not everybody is suited for open to interested in uh, a, a, right. a more broad-based exploratory approach do you feel like it you know what you do is better for recurrent nightmares or because there are people who just have random content nightmares night to night and i've always feel like those are less useful to tackle the uh the referrals through psychology and mental health. Yeah. When, when I've seen people, people who had seemingly random content in, but, but nightmares night after night after mm -hmm. night, usually after a while you can identify some underlying issue that's behind the nightmares. Okay. Uh, even if it's not evident in the content of the nightmares. Uh, okay. I mean, there, there may be, for example, a persistent issue of the person involving themselves in dangerous situations or be becoming involved in dangerous situations in their dreams. And then you might wonder why is that? And, uh, you know, start to inquire about their present day life or their upbringing, uh, why that might be so, you know, yeah. why, what, whatever function there ought to be that keeps somebody most of the time, uh, able to protect themselves mm -hmm. and take good care of themselves isn't, isn't working in that, uh, particular patient. No. We uh, had, uh, Todd favored on talking about nightmares last year and his approach yeah. to treatment was, was a dream rescripting. Yeah. Is mm -hmm. there, is there a certain approach that, that you use um, of the kind of image rehearsal dream rescripting, or is it kind of just trying to figure out the, the basis for kind of the, the, the nightmare and working through. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it, it's the latter. Although, you know, you, you wind up being flexibly responsive, hopefully, mm -hmm. <laughs> to whatever a person brings in and however they seem oriented toward thinking about and working out things and, you know, try to go with that. Um, of, of those two approaches, which are more, you know, I would look at them more as symptom-based mm -hmm. primarily approaches. I like the ERRT quite a bit better than strict imagery rehearsal therapy because it takes the dream seriously. 
you know, they, they try to identify themes in the dreams. Uh, they try to address those with the people. Um, it's done, I guess, with veterans a lot is where, where it's been tried in a group setting where presumably you have some commonality of experience that can be very helpful. Whereas the imagery rehearsal therapy in its pure form anyway, teaches the patients that the dreams are just a habit and that maybe they had some adaptive value in the first place when they were trying to figure out, um, you know, you're trying to work out some reaction, the reactions to a traumatic experience. But by now it's just a kind of vestige and uh, it's going on and on for no particular reason. I haven't seen that uh, in my clinical experience, and I would be pretty reluctant to convey that mm. perspective to a patient. Um, yeah. You know, there's this study... Krakow did, which is one of his most impressive clinical studies of sexual assault survivors. Mm. Um, the results are, are very striking uh, in terms of reduction of nightmares and some enhancement in well-being um, that, that he documented using IRT. Um, I wish there were some accompanying detailed descriptions of individual cases so I could mm -hmm. get a flavor of um, what actually happened. But if if you look at the numbers, it looks like quite a few of those patients had both been sexually abused in childhood and then experienced some kind of sexual assault later in adolescence. Mm. And, you know, I find myself thinking, is this the kind of person who's driven to reenact a traumatic experience with, with awfully tragic results? Right. And the nightmares may be on one level, so to say, a signal to themselves that there's danger yeah. lurking in their minds. And I, you know, to tell somebody like that, that that's just a habit and let's, let, let's change it into a nice story and, yeah. and you don't have to worry about it would, would make me uneasy. Now, maybe, maybe I'm not grasping how, well, how they actually work, but I, that's, yeah. I do think, you know, one wonders when you think about, um, nightmare therapy, uh, involving, uh, you know, considering nightmare content during mm -hmm. your awake hours. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that pertains to a former traumatic event. Mm -hmm. One wonders if that process could at least initially, maybe transiently exacerbate sure. the condition sure. before it leads to an improvement. Sure. Have you seen that occur? I can't, you know, think of specific example, but I, I think that certainly could happen. I mean, it, 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 it's the kind of thing that would make you want to approach things sensitively and gingerly and mm -hmm. let the patient listen to the patient in terms of setting the pace of exploration. Right. Um, and there's actually some literature on nightmares, on traumatic experience that, that suggests that some people who do well don't remember their dreams much at all. Mm -hmm. um, in, in certain studies of may have been Holocaust survivors, actually, um, it was found that if you wake them up during REM sleep, the percentage of dream recall is pretty low in some of the most well-adapted in their external life mm -hmm. uh, people. So, you know, that's another thing to consider. Each person may have their own best way of adapting uh -huh. which, I mean, to speak to myself now, may not be necessarily exploring all of the determinants. Uh, it, it may be finding an effective way to put and keep the stuff out of their minds. Yeah. And, you know, you want to, I think you want to be attuned to the fact that everybody has their own individual ways of coping and adapting. And there is no one size fits all. 
I, I have had those patients where once I treated their sleep apnea and REM was consolidated again, yeah, they started having nightmares, like yeah. for the first time. Mm. Yeah, related to prior trauma. It's probably about one in a hundred patients I treat. Mm. Yeah, they they were now able to consolidate. I don't know if it's I don't I'd have to look to see if it's all recurrent content or what the content exactly was, but they definitely had nightmare disorder after they were treated. Right. Not before. And they complained about it. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, I'm dreaming now, <laughs> by the way. Which you addressed like, with therapy? Uh, yeah. I, I, we took, well, you know, you know what I do. <laughs> yeah. Lots of alpha blockers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but, you'd want to come in quickly too, I think, before but, before they, they because, throw, throw the CPAP out. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I've, never, I have, never I have seen a lot again. of patients say, oh, I started dreaming again. Yeah, after yeah. After starting yeah, them on yeah. CPAP or whatever form of yeah. therapy we decide for sleep apnea, but I haven't had anyone say I've had well, nightmares, but the, presumably the, it makes sense that it could happen. In the private sector, the nightmare incidence is like five to 10% maybe. So it's not probably coming up on your radar that much. I suspect it's much higher in my population. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, uh, you know, and I, I continuously evaluate for it. So it comes up. Oh, those are fascinating observations. I, should be written up, actually. So there should be a compendium. Oh, I thought this was already done. <laughs> um, but I have had people that, you know, I was like, you know, we talked about their nightmares and I, and I talked about image rehearsal therapy or, you yeah. know, dream rescripting. And I get the two confused all the time because I have a psychologist that does it. And I, yeah. if he, I, I get to send that out. But <laughs> there, this guy was just no way. I'm never doing that again. I mean, I got worse, you know, and and uh, and that could be. Yeah. You know, could be the operator. Like some, it's you have to be pretty well trained to do that sort of thing. And I don't know where he got it at or yeah. what have you, but um, it's certainly some people. It's going to be hard to go through that again. You know, especially yeah. if they're not really cognizant of it during the daytime, and yeah. it's just come up at night. They just don't want to face it during the day. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think we want to be aspire to be nimble. <laughs> nimble afoot and switch gears a little bit. If you see that one direction you're trying is, looks like it's going to be more hurtful than helpful and, you know, try and follow if you get them clues from the person as to, you know, what's going to work better for them. What's their characteristic way of dealing with things that works well when they, uh, you know, when they, when they manage effectively. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see a lot of alcohol related parasomnias as far as, you know, like, I guess that's before you answer that. Yeah. If there's alcohol involved, is it a parasomnia? That's a better question, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Probably if it's nightmares, if if it's if you drink, then go to sleep and have nightmares in the morning, it's you would call it alcohol related mm -hmm. nightmares. Uh in terms of the other parasomnias, diagnosing where the alcohol intoxication ends and the parasomnia begins is is probably impossible. Uh and intoxication is also difficult to, you know, yeah. a couple couple of martinis. I mean, I've seen a lot where I had a guy who jumped into a window and broke his neck, right. you know, and, yeah. but cause he thought someone was coming in, but you know, getting the history of, well, were you drinking? How much were you drinking? After the fact, it just seems like, all right, well, you know, they become a head scratcher. Yeah. And then you study them and eh, you don't catch any, anything. You're kind of back to square one, but you know, like, People certainly do act out more in that alcohol withdrawal period, I feel like. Right. You know, I, had yeah. a, I had a patient of like clear cut, looked like REM sleep behavior disorder, but we found out he was drinking like half a keg of beer oh. like every couple nights. Wow. Like they, so 
or like just stop drinking. And yeah. He yeah. stopped acting and it cleared out. Up. It cleared yeah, up. Yeah. Cleared right up. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen some sleepwalking or, you know, people getting up and, um, you know, uh, urinating in what they thought was the bathroom. And, oh, and yeah. I don't know how much of that is true parasomnia. That's a college special. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, yeah, that's a college special. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was college. <laughs> but uh, that wasn't a patient. I've actually, that's, I've experienced, <laughs> not me personally, no, but it's happened in a house that I lived in. <laughs> right. Right. You heard so, somebody tell it yeah. vividly. My friend once. may or may not have done it. Right. <laughs> so did he have sleep apnea? <laughs> I don't know. He was 20 or something. So <laughs> he could have it. <laughs> he could have it. Yeah, that's true. Um, Alan, when you think, uh, you know, forward to the next, I don't know, you know, 20 years of yeah. sleep medicine and yeah. in dealing, treating with parasomnias, yeah. um, you know, both traditional approaches and, you know, from a psychological perspective, yeah. um, what do you see as possible changes in the field? Are there any technologies up and coming you've seen that excite you may, you know, contribute to this process, even if it's like an app that yeah. helps a patient, you know, uh, document, uh, parasomnias. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I don't keep up that much with apps. So there, there, there may be, um, I, I would just hope best case scenario the understanding gets disseminated and, and becomes a little bit more part of common thinking that there can be important psychological components yeah. of these things in addition to, never in place of, but in addition to the sleep-related ones. And that being alert to that and referring patients when, you know, when you're not sure, you think something like that might be going, that that'll become more common. Um, mm -hmm. I'm a little, un, I'm not real optimistic because it seems like some of the advances that are really getting people's attention are advances in, in neuroscience, for example, and genetic treatments and things like that, which are terrific. Uh -huh. um, but how do you simultaneously advance on those fronts and get people to pause and say, wait a minute, it's not all in the brain or in the body. Some of it is in the mind. Oh, yeah. And that needs to be paid attention to. I don't know a Good answer to that. There's, uh, I agree. There's, there's bi-directionality. Um, there's, uh, between, for example, when we see a patient with possible insomnia, we never primary chronic insomnia. We never ignore the possibility of sleep disordered breathing. We always evaluate for that yeah. because if we don't identify and treat it, treating the insomnia will eventually hit a wall. We, we will get to a point mm -hmm. where there's no additional benefit despite you know, right. state of the science treatment, it, it works the other way where um, if we don't address psychological components, even though we know there's an underlying other sleep disorder, uh, it doesn't matter how good we are in counseling and treating sleep apnea, for example, or a parasomnia medically, if we don't address the psychological aspects as well, we're not going to completely help the patient. Right. And and it may harm the other treatment. A person may yeah. say, look, I just don't sleep that well. I don't feel that much better. Yeah. I'm not going to use the CPAP or you know, whatever the case may be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is off topic, but uh, Brooklyn Dodgers. Yeah. Um, That's always <laughs> on you, topic. <laughs> did you go to games? This is going to really date me. <laughs> my, uh, my maternal grandfather was a huge, he, he uh, lived in Brooklyn for a good while. It was a huge Dodger fan. 
the bums, as they were called yes. by, their, by their adoring fans. And <laughs> he used to go to a lot of games with his coworkers. Uh, and when I was maybe eight, nine years old, took me to a few games at Ebbets Field. That was the name oh, of the yeah. uh, ballpark the Dodgers played in right before they moved to Los Angeles. So, yes. Um, Who did you see play? I don't remember. You know what I remember is that the Dodgers, who were great in those years, always lost during the games that I went. I think there was a double header once, and they lost both games. I think the more, most important question is, what's your favorite slice of pie in Brooklyn? Um, I I never lived in or oh, uh, uh, and, yeah. So I I I mean, we would drive in drive for the games, from, yeah. but it was always New Jersey. So gotcha. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tell you how young I was when I went to those games. My grandfather would say the guy hit the home run to the opposite field. I thought that meant there were two fields kind of back to back <laughs> and he hit it out of the one and into the opposite field. So <laughs> couldn't do that. They weren't on steroids back then. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you can tell I was only 23 at the time. When the, when exactly. That, yeah. yeah. Like, how do we, how do we reverse this course? You know, like if, if you're worried, we're, you know, heading yeah. towards this where we're not yeah. really thinking yeah. of the psychological. And I, I, but I've also seen this in my short time where like, when I was trained in insomnia, you broke up insomnia into medical, psychological, and habitual forms. And then years ago, they did, oh, it's chronic insomnia. It was kind of like, you know. Well, they just changed ICSD. Yeah, they're like, rule like out sleep apnea and uh, send a CBT for insomnia, which doesn't work for what I do. Because often my patients are ill and they've got multiple mental health issues, yeah. medical issues. And, and my training to break it down was helpful for what I do. You know, and I've seen what's happened with, you know, these diagnoses. What do we, is there, is there, is it, we are at a fellowship where we could maybe focus on this more, I guess, mm -hmm. and talk to that and, and preach that component. And certainly this podcast helps, I guess, but, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah, no, a couple of years ago, um, a couple of our fellows, I think partly based on the talk I'd given about parasomnias, recognized and uh, in, in a patient, they saw the clear-cut psychological factors in their sexual behavior during sleep, wrote, wrote a poster about it. The case had a very interesting kind of sequence and outcome. So hopefully they took that with them, but gee, it would be nice to find yeah, ways know. to have a broader scale and I but influence. It, it, you know? I, I don't yeah. think that gets much focus at the academy level or even at the no. national conference level. It doesn't. You know, yeah. and... and so I just, I don't know. Yeah. I don't yeah. know what to do about it. I think the answer I, I for everyone is just clonopin, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it works pretty well. So yeah. it kind of, but we don't, again, as Alokman mentioned that if we don't really treat the underlying disorder. You know, we're kind of subjecting someone to lifelong clonopin therapy, which may not be the best thing, uh, especially given the recent, literature on the increase in dementia and the use of benzodiazepines and then all the other yeah. medical issues that can happen with, with, with benzos. So. I've, I've had problems with it because, you know, I do get a lot of parasomnias and the problem I get with it is that there's daytime somnolence because it has a long right. half-life yeah. and it's like, okay, well, you know, and I, you know, you can run the benzo gambit and there's lots of stuff to do, but um, it, it is certainly, it's not a cure-all, yep. no medication is. Is there, I want to be, I know we're running out of time, but is there any psychological component for RBD? Yeah, I've got some tricky patients, you know, yeah. they've had nightmares. They've had some dream enactment after their experiences, yeah. traumatic experiences. Then, you know, decades later and they're intermittent. 
Mm-hmm. And then I always, and then, you know, it's there in that decade where it's like, it could be pre Parkinson's RBD. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the, you know, I'm like, but we're not, it's not clearly showing up on sleep studies. Mm-hmm. Do you think there, and I don't think there's a, a, a huge psychological component for the RBD, but well, I suspect. I think it's a brain disorder. Yeah. Okay. Essentially. I, yeah. Um, but there's this thing that keeps cropping up in the literature, a diagnosis of what is it? Trauma related sleep disorder where they report some loss of remetonia in, um, uh, post-traumatic people. Um, is that the same loss? You know, are these just RBD people, um, who happen to have a history of trauma too, or can the trauma impact that? I I saw that as a fellow at the VA when I was, when we did you know, when I was at the VA, whatever days I was, we had a couple of patients who, you know, and th- these are guys in their thirties, 35, 40, which, you know, way too early for a diagnosis of Parkinson's. Even if you add seven years from the right. date that they get, you know, are diagnosed with RBD, it's probably not Parkinson's, but right. they had clear cut acting out my dreams. I, you know, I remember a dream where I'm in combat and yeah. I know yeah. their spouse is saying, yeah, he's like getting up in bed, firing a machine gun. Yeah. Um, and so it's RBD, but it's like, as Alan said, it, is it trauma related? And did they have REM without Atonia? Yeah, they did. They did. They yeah. did. See, I no, so again, but just cause you don't see it on one right. well, sleep study doesn't mean and that it, it's not there. And, and it, yeah. that's what's weird is that's supposed to respond to alpha blockers, mm-hmm. you know? So, I mean, I hear it, but I don't catch it in my young veterans. I have not, I have not caught it. Well, I've only caught go. it once. Yeah. But. It's, but for as much as it's complained about, I don't see it. I haven't seen any Ram without Atonia in a young man, you know, with trauma related nightmares and stuff. I just huh. have taken the history a thousand right. times. Yeah. What do you think they are if they're not RBD? Uh, something like a flashback with, you know, during a sleep period with, uh, I think it's partially out confusion or arousal. Yeah. You know, they, they're waking up from the dream. Yeah. Not it's dark. They don't know where they are. They don't know who they are. I mean, yeah. I mean, I remember in residency one time I went to sleep and I was on call and someone busted in my room and woke me up and I didn't know where I was, who I was just as dark. And I was afraid. You know? yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so I can just imagine with a proper trauma history that you wake up yeah. from REM, your heart's racing. If you have underlying sleep disorder breathing, which is often the case I have, that these are more like a mix of, uh, without really thinking this through, mix of 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 nightmare disorder with a confusional arousal from sleep kind of disorder breathing. Like a, almost like an overlap syndrome. Yeah. 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 Or a parasomnia yeah. overlap. Yeah. Kind which, of pseudo RBD um, where it's the apnea is, that's driving the... Yeah. And the overlap syndrome has not been associated with an increased risk for Parkinson's no. to my knowledge. Right? No, it's, but I think we don't know for sure. We don't either. know for sure either. Yeah, it, so. You know, and most of the time it's people that, uh, you know, the wife has learned not to wake their husband up without yeah. like a stick, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because they'll, they'll, you know, they've learned to be very careful. And that's where I think it's probably partially confusional arousal. Um, I, I've also had a group of people that were afraid to go to sleep. Yeah. When we talk about childhood abuse, because that's when they were abused at night mm-hmm. and they've had this like lifelong fear of sleeping. Mm-hmm. And do you, is that something you see have you've had experience with, or you've seen crop up over your career? Not, not in that particular form. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it makes sense. And I'd wonder, I'd wonder, is it the going to sleep per se, or is it the giving up control and awareness that happens when you're asleep where you can't be vigilant and protect yourself? That's, 
yeah. frightening them about going to sleep. But, and the, and they know. didn't have nightmares per se. They just, yeah, yeah. they're like, I don't want to go. Yeah, they had yeah. that yeah. sort of response. Yeah. Right. When you uh, see a new patient, Alan, yeah. uh, who may have nightmares or some other parasomnia, yeah. do you, we talked a bit today about the fact that a nightmare may not always be something the patient desires to rid themselves of. Yes. Uh, and maybe calling it a nightmare in that context isn't precise, uh, isn't accurate, maybe just a dream. Yeah. Um, particular dream content may in some cases not be something the patient wants to go away. Right. Uh, seeing that as the, being the case in, um, at times when you open a new uh, relationship with a patient, yeah. how do you do that? Do you act, do you say, tell me about your nightmares you take the referral question and and directly address that head on in your opening mm -hmm. or is it something more uh more open-ended it's more open-ended um i usually begin by asking them to tell me something about what's brought them to me so they can let me know what their concern and complaint is and in the kind of case you're talking about probably it wouldn't be the nightmares or or, or maybe even they would bring up, you know, I have these nightmares, but everybody's telling me it's a problem. I don't want to get rid of the nightmares. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I would say, fine, <laughs> you know, uh -huh. uh, what, you know, what, what, what is concerning you? And, you know, who, who knows over the course of a treatment, how they're thinking about the nightmares and the connection to their uh, other aspects of their life might evolve. But for the time being, that's, that's perfectly fine. Uh, uh -huh. Ernest Hartman, who did a lot of research on dreaming and nightmares, um, died a few years ago in sleep, in the sleep medicine arena, uh -huh. um, co collected huge samples of nightmare patients. I think sometimes by advertising and um, found that there were two groups who did not want to be rid of the nightmares. One were artistic people who seemed to see the access to those parts of their mind as part of their creative process. Uh -huh. And they valued that and they didn't want to give that up. And others who felt the nightmares were somehow integral to their makeup and they didn't want to give up <laughs> something about themselves that felt critically, you know, critically theirs yeah. or them. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a complicated world out there. And, yeah. Yeah. I think uh, one last question. Um, do you find that in the patients that you see with, parasomnia or nightmare or yeah. that there's a certain underlying pathology that some people express these things while other people don't a lot of people undergo trauma yeah. whether it's violent or sexual or ptsd related but not everyone is going to have like a different phenotype right yeah is there a certain phenotypic you know like a certain type of person that is yeah. more prone to have these things versus someone who's not. And I don't know if that's even an answerable question. No, I think it's, it's a great question really, really to think about. Um, and a, a nuance, a nuance of it might be to ask, are the people who develop nightmares somehow more apt to process things mentally than the people who develop sort of behaviors coming out of non-REM sleep in a state of impaired consciousness who may be more action Mm -hmm. prone, but that's purely off the top right. of my head. I, I haven't had a chance to think about that question before. Mm -hmm. um, uh, 
but it's a, it's a fascinating thing to so, think about. Actually. But the fundamental of that is that they're both dealing with trauma, but they're processing it differently. That, that, that's what I was wondering. Yeah. 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 I, I don't know right. that that's the case at all. Just to but rephrase it, just, it. It just struck me that way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe trauma maybe or other difficult psychological right. developmental yeah. experiences or yeah. Conflicts. Yeah. I, I wonder if we could circle back to your original comment about beauty. Um, yeah. that it can be found sometimes in abnormalities or in situations that may initially be perceived as problematic. Um, and I think your approach, your patient-centered approach, making it about what they want to achieve is really a good lesson for all, all of us, all our listeners, in helping them turn what initially appears to be a bad experience into something that has value to their growth. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I, I, Way to bring it full circle. <laughs> nice. Yes. We rarely do that's that. A good, that's, a, that's, a good, that's a good conclusion. Um, Alan, thank you so much for coming on. I'm glad it's we were able pleasure. to finally do this. Thank you. Um, thank you for having me. We hope you guys right, listen, uh, enjoyed listening to this. A little bit different discussion, I think of a psychodynamic approach to parasomnia is a little bit, you know, very different from what we usually do where we really focus on the medical aspect of things. So hope you're able to learn something. Uh, we will have this episode up on again, iTunes, Spotify, Google play, uh, and it'll be available to listen to on our website, which is back up. Finally, thank you, Google, uh, <laughs> www.thewhitenoisepodcast.com. And we will be back, uh, next month. Yeah. So we will see you then. Uh, have a good rest of the month. Thank you very much. Thank you.